how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast interview series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, chefs, and various other types of creatives as we bridge the gap between creativity and productivity. Here we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and lessons that help promote a successful creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. Make sure to also check out Freelancer Class, where you can learn how to become a freelancer full-time or part-time. The online course will teach you how to make money online as a writer, marketer, designer, virtual assistant, accountant, or salesperson. Stay tuned after the show to learn how to get access for free to this $99 valued freelancer course, along with some other free items on our website, creativeprinciples.live. The book Sticky Fingers, The Life and Times of Jan Winner and Rolling Stone Magazine is the story of one man's ego, 1960s youth culture, and the history of rock and roll all jammed into one. Like the magazine, the book covers power, fame, and politics through unbelievable stories involving icons of rock. The book provides vivid details about rock stars like John Lennon, Mick Jagger, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, Elton John, Paul McCartney, Keith Richards, Pete Townsend, Yoko Ono, Dan Aykroyd, Bette Miller, and Rolling Stone contributor Hunter S. Thompson, among others. Rolling Stone creator and editor Jan Winter gave exclusive access to author Joe Hagen for this book. Winner, often described as both a promoter and a backstabber, gave Hagen access to conversations and images from the greatest superstars in history. In this exclusive interview, author Joe Hagen talks about his chance encounter with Jan Winner, his career as a journalist, 1960s counterculture, and the importance and dangers of grasping at greatness. So Jan Winner was the founder uh, of Rolling Stone magazine in the late 60s, 1967. Um, he was 21 years old. He was like a Berkeley um, college dropout, you know, the got involved in sort of the burgeoning counterculture at the time. And uh, as things were sort of taking off in San Francisco, where he was based, uh, you know, he had the idea to start a magazine to kind of capture this you know, the dawning of this new rock and roll age that was happening in the youth boom. Um, so, you know, flash forward nearly 50 years, um, I met him sort of randomly, really, in a coffee shop in upstate New York where I was living. He walked into it while I was working on my laptop, and I flagged him down, said hello. I knew who he was because I recognized him. And, uh, and, uh, struck up a conversation with him and sort of an acquaintance with him. And um, after getting to know him for a couple of years off on having lunch and coffee with him here and there talking about the magazine business, he um, asked me to write his biography. And I'd been a journalist, you know, for 15 years or so up to that point. And so I was, you know, flattered and totally fascinated and interested. And that's how it all began. What was some of your, your background? Did you write for Rolling Stone? What were some of those magazines you were working for? Sure. Well, at the time, I was writing for New York Magazine, and uh, I'd been working there for, 
I don't know, maybe almost 10 years. And uh, before that, I was at the Wall Street Journal. And, uh, you know, I'd done lots of freelance things here and there, including for Rolling Stone. And, um, uh, but I never worked for Rolling Stone, you know, as a staff writer or anything. It was all freelance kind of stuff and did profiles for them. Um, and, uh, so, and, and a couple of those I did after I met him, he assigned them to me, um, uh, during that in between time before he asked me to do the book. So I actually came across your book. I write for a website and they asked me to start writing some classic rock articles. And I found it very useful kind of as a, as a timeline uh, of events and musicians and some of the finer nuances of the pop culture at the time. It really seemed like to me it kind of started at, towards the end of the Beatles and pre-Bruce Springsteen. Where did your research begin for this book? Well, so the first thing that I did was write a book proposal to sell the book. And, um, you know, the way I thought of it was like, well, let me think about who are the most important sort of rock star relationships that Jan Winner in Rolling Stone magazine might have had. And so I kind of out of the blue, but it wasn't that complicated to think about. I chose John Lennon. He was on the cover of the first issue. And, of course, he was the the Beatles, right? And uh, incredibly important. So I thought I'd, I went into Jan Winner's archive, uh, which was a vast archive of correspondence and you know files and letters and pictures and so forth. And that uh, went through the John Lennon file and saw what kind of story was there and built a book proposal out of it, which became more or less the first, you know, the opening of the book. And uh, because it turned out there was this really interesting narrative there where he had befriended John Lennon and got this massive interview with him and then later betrayed him over a kind of a petty um, business deal, really. And uh, so I thought, well, that's all pretty interesting. And so that's where I began. And uh, then, you know, it was a matter of break, you know, when you're doing a biography, you're talking about a timeline. So you kind of break things up into periods and you try to find out what the milestones are and you say, well, okay, I'm going to write about, in this section, it's going to be about 1967 when he starts Rolling Stone magazine up until 1970 when the culture kind of shifted um, after the 60s into another thing. And then I'll, you know, you start to break it down and into chunks like that. And generally I went along that timeline, although I'd saved the childhood stuff for kind of later. I'd, I, uh, it was sort of a separate thing. And then, I, but then I did it kind of, you know, uh, in parallel with the rest of it um, until I got to the end, which, you know, I basically wrote the back end of the book towards the end of the writing process. You know, it, and a lot of that stuff was current events. You know, it was stuff that was happening in the last 10 years. So you had a relationship with the subject, but I wouldn't necessarily like call him the hero of the book. He's, he's a promoter, but sometimes he's kind of a backstabber. Um, what do you think this was kind of as an outsider? Is it just his relentless pursuit for more um, like what pushed him as a person or as kind of a, a character in this book? Well, that is where the childhood part became interesting because, you know, when I got to know him and came to know him, I, I, he already had a reputation among people as being kind of mercurial and uh, volatile, potentially, you know, somebody you didn't want to um, trust necessarily. And so I thought, well, my biggest challenge here was going to be to humanize him, to at least give you a sense of what motivated him uh, early in his life so that when everything else was unfolding, you would kind of see the thread of his of his uh, motives and interests. And so you learn a little bit about 
how he was abandoned early in his life by his parents, and he sort of had this feeling that he was on his own, and he didn't trust anybody, and he didn't have really a lot of paternal love you know, as a child. And he becomes, when he sort of uh, reaches high school or whatever, he is, he's got this sort of like um, dual sort of aspect to his personality. On the one hand, he's incredibly ambitious and confident, and on the other hand, just wildly insecure. You know, and these things often go together in a character, right? And his he just becomes becomes uh, incredibly ambitious. And what really motivates him is his desire to be around people that he thinks of as the important and beautiful people. And he's a social climber. And so when you sort of figure that out about him, it both sort of sets up the narrative of the book to watch him climb through the culture, right, from... Uh, from the rock and roll in San Francisco to, you know, uh, politics in Washington to Hollywood and eventually to New York City. And you kind of see him making his way through it and how the magazine was almost like the output of that, right? People he would meet and befriend, they would end up in the magazine. And, you know, he he was as mercurial as the culture itself in many ways. You know, we think of, you often hear, heard it said that the culture is ephemeral, right? Well, he had a kind of ephemeral kind of nature, and that's what made him a great magazine editor. It didn't necessarily make him a great human being all the time. And that's sort of the conundrum at the heart of the book. Was there anything that, you know, felt particularly shocking or, any, or anything that made it to the book that you were almost hesitant to put in the book? No, I, I'm not. I'm, you know, I'm sort of a, in the let it rip kind of school of, you know, let's find out what happened and put it all in. I mean, that one of the things that I understood was going to be a challenge and a task for me was this sort of, and also the kind of core of the book in many ways was, uh, for most of the history of Rolling Stone magazine, including at the beginning, uh, Jan Winter was in the closet. He was gay, a gay man who was married to a very beautiful woman whose family happened to have put up the money to start Rolling Stone. And so you had this kind of uh, interesting bargain that seemed to be happening here or a kind of collaborative understanding between he and his wife and how was that going to work. Um, and what did it mean for how he viewed the culture and how he um, – kind of uh, navigated it. And, 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 you know, what does it mean that the person who is shaping the image of rock stars, most of whom are male, was, uh, you know, a gay man? And so I knew that this was going to churn up a lot of, you know, kind of fascinating material, but also be full of conflict. And he, he didn't like exploring that as much as I did, you know. Um, but it his marriage to his wife, Jane Winter, um, to me was sort of the core narrative, you know, the core personal narrative, because she was so much a part of the success of the magazine, but nobody had ever really heard of her. She was in the background always, and she sort of served a purpose for him and, in, and served a purpose for the Enterprise Rolling Stone magazine. And, uh, you know, as you learn in the book, that ends up churning out, you know, that they have these sexually ambiguous, ambiguous lives, they're having lots of affairs, there's, you know, threesomes and drugs and all the things that went along with the 1970s. And, uh, but, you know, it was part of how they tapped the culture, you know, it was part of how they became the culture and were of the culture. And 
the reason Rolling Stone was successful, especially in the 70s, was it was such a pure reflection of what of the culture that they were mining, you know, which was the rock and roll culture and the youth culture and everything the youth were doing, which was essentially the baby boomers taking over the world. I recently heard a quote from Stuart Brand, the creator of the Whole Earth Catalog. I'm going to kind of paraphrase it. But he basically said to uh, the goal in life should be to have one really good idea and try not to have another one, which he was saying just to, to focus on one thing. Do you think Jan uh, Winter had too many good ideas that kind of slowed down this great idea or this pursuit to make the magazine the best it could be? Well, that was one of the sort of uh, educations of Jan Winter in the 70s was that he tried to expand in all these different ways, and he usually failed. And, uh, you know, there's a part in the early 80s where he actually says, you know, he figures out, listen, I, maybe I should just stick with Rolling Stone. You know, I, I've i tried to do movies, I've tried to do other things, and it's never really worked out, and I should just stick to Rolling Stone, which is the one idea that I had that was always continues to be successful. I mean, to the point where... Uh, it was often successful despite him or despite his business decisions, right? And so, yeah, I mean, it was later, you get into the early 2000s period towards the end of the of the story, he has the idea to, you know, relaunch Us magazine as a weekly and turn it into this big tabloid success. And that was, you know, a latter-day success of his, which he hadn't had anything like that since the beginning, really, since Rolling Stone, first thing. And, um, you know... It's true that Jan had one big, great idea, and he kind of um, managed to uh, both keep it going, but also to um, adapt to the subject matter of his magazine, which was a very swiftly moving thing, which was popular culture, you know? Um, so, yeah, I would agree with that to, to a large degree. Um, for those people who haven't read the book yet, can you kind of summarize one thing that I'd, I'm only 30, so I haven't, I didn't know as much about the creation of the magazine or why. Can you kind of elaborate just for those listening where the title came from um, in regards to Bob Dylan and, and the actual Rolling Stones band? Yeah, sure. So Sticky Fingers was the um, title of a Rolling Stones album in the early 70s, kind of a notorious uh, cover, which was like a Andy uh, Andy Warhol photograph of a crotch, and the cover design had an actual zipper on it. In the cover of the record, you could zip the zipper on the crotch up and down, and so you know that made a splash, as you can imagine. Um, but the title really is both a uh, tip of the hat to the fact that the Rolling Stones band and Jan Wenner's magazine Rolling Stone had a kind of conflict over the name at the outset of the creation of the magazine, and that there had been some legal uh, fracas over the trademark. And that this sort of uh, name similarity between the magazine and the band was ended up being kind of a, a subtext of the relationship between Jan and Mick Jagger for 50 years. And, but it, uh, more, and so that's, you know, Sticky Fingers is a bit of a joke on that, but there's also the fact that uh, I'm trying to, this book is about ambition. It's about all these characters you've heard and know about, John Lennon, Mick Jagger, Dylan, and of course, Jan Wenner, grasping for the things that they want. And Jan, especially, who always considered himself sort of the essence of the baby boom generation, is this sort of unbridled 
uh, ball of desire who wants things and is grabbing things and is taking things. And Sticky Fingers is a little bit about that. It's about, and it's about, you know, listen, there's the sexuality aspect of it and uh, the kind of, um, which, you know, the Rolling Stones album title was also alluding to. You know, the groupiedom, let's put it that way, that Jan Winter represented, he was considered this like ultimate groupie to these rock stars. Um, and but but like I said, the essence of it is about ambition, about the ambition of a generation to take over the world. Do you think certain aspects about the, either the time frame or rock music in general will live on in a way that it, it can't again? Like for example, uh, Cal Fussman, a writer for I think Esquire, has said that there won't be another person as famous as Muhammad Ali was when he was that famous. And the same thing for Chuck Chuck Klosterman is another author who has said that. There won't be music like this original rock and roll music again. Do you kind of see that we're past those days, and, and that's kind of what highlights in this book? Absolutely, and I agree with that. And, and but there's a very simple explanation. It's not that it was so great qualitatively that it, nothing great like that can happen again. It's it really was a rare moment in popular culture and in American history in which the means of uh, listening to things and knowing about things was uh, so limited and narrow. Uh, and what I mean by that is there was what the, some people refer to as the monoculture of America. There was a single, single culture back then before it fragmented with the Internet age in, in which there were only three TV channels, a handful of newspapers, a handful of magazines, and that's how everybody knew everything, you know? And in that sort of narrow band world, uh, a few people came along who accrued to them immense, you know, spectacular celebrity of a kind that you can barely achieve today, you know, unless you get into the White House. <laughs> um, and that sort of uh, cult, there was a cult of the individual that came out of the 60s Renaissance, especially in the TV age, right? And TV, which came, you know really took off in the 50s, was minted a new kind of fame and a new kind of celebrity. And Elvis was the sort of, you know, kind of an atom bomb moment of that kind of celebrity and fame. And as you watch the arc of the culture starting in the 60s all the way to now, you know, you watch as fame has di diminishing returns. And, um, but the 60s was also kind of a really unique renaissance, you know, like a the renaissance. There was a, a kind of wave of uh, freedom and artistry and reinvention that was peculiar to that moment. And part of that peculiarity was the way the uh, the media worked. You know, there was the famous quote, the medium is the message. Well, in that case, the medium was generally TV uh, and the radio. Um, but now look where we're at. It's like anybody can get anything from five different directions, you know, so everybody's less famous. So there's more of them, but it's just, uh, you know, it's the Andy Warhol thing. Everybody will be famous for 15 minutes, but now everybody's just famous for like a millisecond, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's my... Uh, two cents on that. So, so in terms of today's culture, I read your book and then I started reading another book that was a little bit similar. Uh, it's a new book called Conspiracy by Ron Holiday. It's about the Peter Till uh, Gawker legal issues, but there are some similarities between 
the Gawker founder, Nick Denton, and um, Jan Winter, that kind of about their creation, their pursuits, uh, the gossip, and the risk of what they were doing. Um, outside of that, though, as a writer and a journalist, how do you kind of define today's journalistic integrity? How do you see it different from the past? Well, there's just a whole lot more of it than there ever was. I mean, and more access to it than there ever was. I just think, uh, so last week, um, there was a story in the New York Times on Friday about Jared Kushner, um, you know, having meetings with, um, you know, different people in the White House, and then those people turning around and investing a bunch of money into his personal company. And it was, you know, basically about this kind of eye-popping kind of corruption on its face of something, you know, somebody using their White House power to uh, enrich their own personal company. That sort of story, that's like, uh, you know, many orders of magnitude uh, more scandalous than Watergate, you know? And there's a story like that every other week, <laughs> you know? And, you know, the the level of reporting is very high today, and there's a lot of it. and But there's also a lot of uh, gradations of journalism down to the most completely false, you know, fictional, uh, literally fake news. Um, and you get this whole spectrum, and it's up to the reader to kind of like navigate through that and decide who they trust, you know. But I would say there's like as great journalism being made today as there ever was. It just does no single source of it is as powerful as it was during this monoculture that I mentioned before, back when the Washington Post and the New York Times ruled the universe. You know, I mean, there was a book by David Halberstam in the late 70s called The Powers That Be. And it was a very just deadly serious uh, book about how New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, the three TV networks ruled the world. They were the powers that be, you know. Well, that's – I don't know if you can say that today, that they, they still have power. Um, but there's lots of other powers too, you know, and uh, it's been kind of flattened across this internet landscape. And so it's about, it, you know, it, I guess what I'm really saying is it's like apples and oranges to compare, um, you know, the journalism world that I write about in this book to today. Uh, but although the characters, you know, human nature is human nature. So Nick Denton and Jan Wenner could be the same character, they're just in a different cultural setting, you know, uh, because. You know, every time uh, new people are born, uh, they come out basically, you know, uh, with the same set of information. <laughs> now, it's not like they're, uh, it's not like we're evolving. I mean, Donald Trump is president, for Christ's sake. So, well, in addition to, you know, obviously there's political size, but do you think it's just as far as the story of the week? Is it just that we're all accepting and metabolizing things so quickly that we don't really, you know, stress a problem that's there? Well, I mean, in the past, if you had a story like that, it would spur a congressional investigation and you would have actual people with power um, doing something about it, you know. But as it stands now, there's a Republican Congress that is completely at the, um, you know, not not at the mercy they're advocating for and and promoting uh, the White House agenda. And so there's no countervailing force. You know, there's no actual power in the hands of anybody who has got a contrary uh, 
kind of point of view or who was willing to kind of um, speak truth to power, as they used to say, except, you know, maybe Bob Mueller, the the investigator, uh, you know, working on the independent uh, investigator, and God knows what he'll turn up and nobody really knows. And Some people are probably putting too much hope into that, but, you know, everything could change when the uh, midterm elections come and there could be a power shift, but... It is pretty remarkable the amount of journalism that's been produced in the last two years. Even during the campaign for president, there was amazing material that came out and really uh, stellar journalism. And I was highly impressed with some of it and always a little bit surprised that it didn't have a greater impact, truthfully. Well, thank you for your time today. Is there anything else you'd like to say about the book or any future projects you may be working on? Well, uh, I don't have a future project just yet. I'll probably write some magazine stories. Um, later this year, the paperback of the book comes out this fall. There'll be some revisions in there, you know, covering some of the um, latest uh, developments like Rolling Stone, Jan Wenner selling the controlling stake in Rolling Stone uh, a couple of months ago. So um, what I would say just generally is that, you know, the book is um, a, it's a cultural history as much as it is about a, a single person. You know, I sort of used Jan Winter as a way to, like, the, you know, follow the bouncing ball. You know, you just watch him go through the culture, and you get to know a little bit about um, what was going on in the culture at any one moment, and watch how it twists and turns, and how he twists and turns with it. And it really attempts to explain or understand, you know, how it is we got, as I write in the book, uh, from John Lennon on the cover of Rolling Stone in 1967 to this moment we're in. You know, who would have predicted that this is where we would be when there was this, you know, huge baby boom, this wave of young people with this whole new point of view about life and rock and roll and a new value system and freedom and, you know, civil rights and all the good things that we think of about the 60s. But then, you know, over the arc of the next 50 years, we land where we are today. So how did that happen? And the book kind of touches on that a little bit through the story of this man and the culture. And so if, uh, people who may not even be interested in Jan Winter, the man, might be interested in the story of rock and roll and the baby boom and popular American culture. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Before you leave, don't forget to sign up for the weekly newsletter where you also get free access to the freelancer course, Master the Freelancer Mindset. This system will teach you exactly how to find clients online which includes step one, the psychology of the mindset, step two, how to create a killer profile, and step three, how to find quality clients. This online course is valued at $99. It can be yours for free. In addition to the free course, you'll get access to the ebook, How Hollywood Screenwriters Annihilate Writer's Block. This contains advice from Aaron Sorkin, Carrie Fukunaga, and William Monahan. You can find all of this and more on creativeprinciples.live. Visit the website for new interviews, articles, and the daily blog. That's creativeprinciples.live.